So at this point, he had to be 80, 90 years old. Like, he looked old. And his skin, something was wrong with it. Something terribly wrong. It looked like cracked leather. And, and it's not enough to say that it was just too much sun. Like, they say that he's actually been boiled in oil. Boiling oil. He was dunked in it and somehow miraculously survived. And when he survived that, they didn't know what to do with him. So they sent him off to this remote island trying to get rid of him somehow. And there, in that remote island, if you go there, if you were to take the boat and travel there somewhere in a cave, they say he lives there. He's been there for years. Like some say he's gone completely mad. He says that Jesus himself showed up to him and showed him a vision of the end of the world. Like bowls of wrath and trumpets and terrible beasts that you can't imagine and four horsemen of the apocalypse. But this letter he wrote from there has been read by Christians now all over and they start calling it the book of Revelation. You see, he's, he's the last. Like every other one has been executed. He's the last one of the twelve. But this man named John, here he is. Six decades after Jesus walked the earth. Like he's an artifact. He's an eyewitness to history. Can you imagine in 90 AD or thereabout, like you've already read these stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke. Like you've already heard the, the teachings of the Apostle Paul and you've seen this Jesus movement thing sweep across the Roman Empire. But here, exiled on the island of Patmos, living in a cave, is this ancient, mysterious, maybe mad man. The last living testament to Jesus Christ. And, and if you read his words, if you listen to him, he speaks so simply that you might you might be confused. You might think he's just uneducated. He sounds, his vocab's like that of a child. But as you listen to him, you wonder, is he simple or is he genius or is he somehow both? Like he doesn't speak like a person like you and I would speak. He doesn't speak to try and impress anyone. He doesn't speak because, because he's trying to sell himself or sell anything. In fact, he speaks like a man who must speak, like he's seen something, he's tasted something, he's known something that he can't not share. And this man, he, he has every reason to hate life at this point. Like all of his friends have been killed. Like he's been exiled, he's been boiled in oil. But the only thing that seems to overwhelm him, if you read his writings, is he's overwhelmed by the love of God. Like, he can't stop talking about it. He can't stop writing about it. He can't stop. And you just have to ask, what has this man seen? Like, what does he know that we don't know? Like, how does he live in the depths of joy and peace and love and faith? You see, as I spend more time with this man named John, and I, and I get into the stories that he told, I start thinking, maybe, maybe... I'm missing something. Maybe we're missing something. Especially this time of year. Now don't get me wrong, I love Christmas. I love all the stuff about Christmas. And I, I'm the first one out there buying eggnog and putting on jingle bells and, and all the Christmas trees. And my Pandora channel for Dean Martin Christmas, which I would recommend to all of you. I've been playing that now for weeks on end. I love Christmas. 
But maybe, I don't think it's too radical to suggest that maybe all of us struggle with something that we've become just a tad bit superficial during Christmas. Maybe. Maybe materialism has had a little too much impact on us. Maybe we've spent too much time in the shopping malls and we need to spend a little bit of time with a man who lives in a cave who's lost everything for Jesus Christ. Maybe we need to hear his Christmas story. John has some things to say about Christmas that no commercial and no shopping mall will ever tell us. John seems to think that Christmas, the coming of Jesus, answers the biggest questions in life. He seems to think that the mysteries of the universe are tied up, not in Santa Claus and not in Dean Martin Christmas, though that's wonderful but in this coming of a man named Jesus. And for the next three weeks, I want us to, in the midst of the chaos that is our season, to find a little peace and quiet. Just a moment. To maybe go a little bit deeper. Like what I really want to do, if we could, is I'd want to go back to 90 AD. And I want to get in a boat on the the shores of Turkey there. And I I want to paddle out to Patmos. And I want to search across this, this God-forsaken island for that cave. And I want to go in and I want to find this old, gnarly, nasty-looking old man. And I want to, I want to say, is that John? Like I want to, I want to nudge him and watch him wake up and wipe the sludge out of his eyes. And I want to sit by the fire and make a cup of tea and say, John, John, tell me the stories. Like what you've seen, I need to see it. Tell me the story of Christmas from your perspective. John, the the person, the thing, whatever it is that has made you who you are. John, I have to hear that story. It begins like this. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. If you wake up this old man and you nudge him by the fire, the first thing he's going to say is this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And without explanation, without any type of introduction, John starts and what scholars think is it's like a hymn or a poem or chanting or something. I don't know, but it's weird. Like, this isn't a normal story. He's, he's got something epic that he wants to portray that he can only tell us in this poetic, lofty language. In the beginning, he starts. In the beginning of what, John? What are you talking about? In the beginning of everything, of course. So, uh, when I was first married, very first Christmas, in fact, uh, as a married couple, went to my in-laws, and we celebrated a Christmas dinner with uh, with Jenny's family. It was very nice, and I was still at that point in our marriage where I was trying to impress her family. Thankfully, I've gotten over that. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm just uh, I'm just being nice, friendly, trying to glad hand everybody, and like, oh, so thank you, part of the family now. And, and after dinner, I go over to her grandfather and just ask an innocent question. Like one of those questions that you'd ask just like any type of conversation starter, just like let's chit chat, I like you type of question. So I asked him this, so how long have you lived here? 
Now, what I did not know at that moment is that Jenny's grandfather is infamous for cornering people. He would corner them, and then he would share in great detail stories that would go on and on and on until you despaired of life itself. And so he starts out, I ask him, so how long have you lived here? And he begins with the very first thing he can remember about that house. I think, well, this is funny. The very beginning of how he ever saw the house, that's great. Let's, let's go with this. And so for the first 20 minutes, I'm nodding and smiling. And then about 30 minutes in, I'm not, I promise you, he starts telling me about all the measurements between the studs. That wasn't 16 on center, but that one was, and that wasn't. I'm like, Whoa! In about 40 minutes, my eyes are looking around the room. Where's Kitty? Where's someone else? Please save me. And I noticed that everyone's averting their eyes because they know if they get involved in a conversation, it's like a black hole. Light itself gets lost in it. When we start this story with John, I feel a little bit like that. Like, I just asked you a Christmas question. Tell me about Christmas. And he's like, tell me about the origin of Christmas. And he's like, let me tell you about the origin Huh? Like, when do we get to, like, the wise men and dress up like shepherds and little baby Jesus? And when do we bring the animals in? And he's like, we, we don't. I'm like, what do you mean we don't? That's the Christmas story. He's like, no, no, no. If you want to read that Christmas story, go read Matthew, Mark, Luke. I mean, you, you've already got that. Matthew and Luke, they covered it all. Go read them. That's not the story I want to tell. John's Christmas story doesn't start there. It doesn't start with wise men. It's before the wise men. It's before people. It doesn't start with the star of Bethlehem. It's before stars. Okay. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to try to imagine the beginning. Okay, imagine before trees or planets or, or stars or anything. Imagine something, some time before height or depth or width, before color or taste or smell or anything observable. Try to imagine a time without gravity or electromagnetism or the strong or weak nuclear forces. Try to imagine before time itself. Now, what do you have in your mind? If it is absolute frustration and helplessness, then you're there. That's where we have to begin. It's something, it's unimaginable. Like, like words cannot capture it. It's indescribable. It's unimaginable. We can't fathom an existence outside of space and time. We have to use words like outside, which is a spatial term, which doesn't make sense there. It's indescribable. Words that are based in our universe, they fail. There's no before or after. There's no cause and effect. There's no here. There's no there. And John says, that's where we have to begin. You know why the Christmas story has to begin there? Because in the beginning was the Word. You know, in English, we um, we talk about words, and um, we tend to be grossly literal, right? I fill my lungs. Oh, I, I, I expel the air through my vocal cords. They come out in distinct syllables and sounds. And then I can say... Apple. Right? So that's a word. It's this distinct sound that symbolizes something outside of itself. It's communication. It's all of this. And, and, and that's good. Like we can say light 
and apple and happy. But this is a little bit deeper than this. If you have small children, you have a hint of this. So um, if you have small children, you've experienced the miracle of words, right? So this is when your, your precious, brilliant child looks up at you and says, Dad, Dad. And what happens at that moment? You're like, get the camera! Come here! Did you hear my brilliant, brilliant child? Like, we, we gotta, we gotta call the grandparents. We gotta tell everybody in the world. She just said, Dada. Now, is that ridiculous? Yes, it is. And no, it's not. You know why? Because that is a miracle. That is magical. That is not just a word. That is a connection. Now, I'm not saying that you can't know your children until they speak, but I'm saying that after they speak, suddenly you have, like, their, their tantrum. You can say, stop that. Use your words. Huh? You use that one? Now when they're sick, they can tell you what's wrong. Now they can tell you so much more. So, not that you don't know and love your children before they can speak. But let me tell you, when I pick up my daughter from the bus stop, and she tells me stories. Hello? Yes. I'll get that. Uh, when, when I pick up my daughter from the bus stop, and she starts telling me about her day, about this friend that did this, and that art project, and that thing that's going on in her, that thing she's really worried about. Like, are those just words? Well, yes, but those are so much more than words. These words are beautiful. They're more than information. They are self-expression. They're relationship. They give meaning to life itself. That those words connect us in a way that nothing else can. And that's the type of word that the Greeks saw here. You know, the ancient Greeks, their word for a word was, if you know any Greek words, you might know this one. It's logos or logos. So the ancient Greeks, they weren't so so literal about words. When when they talked about words, they weren't just talking about air expelling from the lungs and going through the vocal cords. They talk about the inner mind, the reason, the logic, the connection that you don't necessarily see behind all things. So, in my mind, I picture a red piece of fruit. With my mouth, I say, apple. And then even if you don't see this, in your mind is formed a thought of an apple. You think of something crisp and something yummy and something delicious, right? So what they're saying is that that word isn't just that thought in my mind and it's not just the word coming out. It's also the word in your mind that 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 connects us, all of that is the word that there's this connection between you and me that I can express the internet, inner spiritual thoughts of my heart and share them with you. That is the word that even if I don't speak it, And what they did is there are these guys, philosophers like Heraclitus and the Stoics, and they took this word, word, and they said, you know what, the universe is kind of like that. Like if you look at at a sunset, and you look at the stars, and you go by the water, it seems like it's more than just a thing. It seems like it's expressing something, that there's something deeper connecting all of us, that there's some grand principle or meaning behind the universe. And they called that the Logos. Of course, John was not a Greek. John was a Jew, Jewish Christian, but Jew. And for an ancient Jew, the word was not just some grand principle, not some philosophic idea. It was in the beginning, God created 
the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, it's the word of God. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, where it initially says this initial moment of in the beginning, God created, in the beginning was the word. We find that God's word is there in the beginning. That When God says, let there be light, there was light. When God says, let there be an expanse, there is an expanse. When God says, let the water separate from, from the earth, it does. Okay, so let's talk about this real quick. This is, a, this is a philosophy 101, okay? I have words and God has words. And those are alike in some ways. But we're going to have to understand there's a, there's a primary, a fundamental difference in my words and God's words. So my words can describe reality. This is red in some other colors, but red. This is black. She is pretty. This is church. Right? So I can, my words can describe, but my words also have power. I bet you didn't know that. The power of Paul's word. My words can create and manipulate and persuade things. So, real quick. Will everyone just raise their left hand? Everyone? By the power of my word, I just made you raise your left hand. Huh? See, I can cause things to happen. Sorry, that was totally abusive. <laughs> but it's true. By the power of my word, I persuaded you and manipulated you to do that. Now, here's there, there's one little difference. God's word is powerful too, but it's powerful in a totally different way. God speaks reality into existence. God says, let there be light. And where there was nothing, there is light. Like God's word causes reality. The psalmist puts it this way. Let Psalm 33. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. Why? Why should you fear and tremble before God? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Like his words create reality. The only reason things exist is because God wills them to exist. And in the beginning, that's the way it was. In the beginning was the Word. So what's your point, John? John says that the Word, God's Word, is the source of all things. So if you sit down and you're sitting there by this fire with John in this damp cave, you say, John, okay, my mind just got blown here, but let's talk through this real quick. Why is the sky blue? And he would say, well, the word. Well, why is fire warm? And he would say, well, it's the word. Like, well, why, why does the moon circle around the earth? And he would say, well, it's the word. John, you're just saying the word over and over and over here. Let's try something different. Why are women in the bathroom so long? <laughs> why? Why is 80s fashion back in style? <laughs> now, I don't... I think God even knows the answer to that one. But John, Johnny, Jono, I mean, I love you, man. I, that whole 316 thing is awesome. Love it. And Revelation blew my mind. I love what you're doing here, but let's just be clear here. Do you realize how crazy someone will sound in 2014 if they just say, the word, the word, the word caused everything? Do you realize how crazy it will sound if we go around saying, why does everything exist? Because of God's word? 
Like, that you're saying that some word that exists in some unimaginable dimension in an indescribable way that no one could ever know or see, that that's the reason for everything. Do you know how crazy that will sound? You see, what's happened since you've died? I'm sorry, John. Truth's hard. About 1,600 years later, there's this thing called the Enlightenment. We really like it. We do. Scientific method. We can measure things. We can observe things. We have facts. We don't just have to say the word anymore. So John's like, great. I've got a question for you. Why do apples fall from a tree? And we're like, easy. Easy, John. We know this one. Why do apples fall from a tree? Sir Isaac Newton. He's got our back covered here, right? He's not a pretty man, but he's a smart one. So, duh, gravity. Gravity, mass, and it's the same reason why the planets circle the sun and the moon circles the earth. Gravity, right? But, but John would say, but why? Why does gravity work? And Isaac Newton, and, and we're just like, I don't know. It does. It really does. It seems to. But that's okay, because you just move a few hundred years forward, and, and you got this guy. This guy, he knows so much. He's got the answers for us, right? He is, he, we don't have to say the word anymore because we know what gravity really is. It is a seggy mattress. Huh? Huh? Have you guys had your physics? Do you remember the seggy mattress thing? This is what gravity really is. That there's this space-time continuum and this, the mass of objects creates fluctuations in space-time. So it's really just things rolling towards each other. So why does the apple fall to earth? Because there's a fluctuation in space-time and it's just following the line of that. Huh? Doesn't that sound great? It does. And so we ask the question that, that we need to ask Einstein. That John's going to ask us is, well, does it work all the time? So, well, yes, it does. General relativity has been proven to like the one trillionth of a percentage of the time that it's, it's accuracy. General relativity, which explains gravity and all this, it, it works. It works all the time except when it doesn't. I mean, there's this one kind of troubling thing that when you get down to quantum physics, when you get down to the very smallest things, for some reason, at subatomic particle levels, at quarks and leptons and electrons, you can pretty much throw all that out the window. You guys know this, right? That at that level, gravity, general relativity don't make sense. In fact, general relativity contradicts everything that happens there, and everything that happens there contradicts general relativity. So, John says, well, that makes perfect sense then. Okay, great. So what is the answer? Why, why does gravity work then? And that's, that's okay, because, okay, what Isaac Newton couldn't do, and what Einstein couldn't do, this guy can do. This is Brian Greene. Do you guys know Brian Greene? You need to watch Nova. This guy's awesome. He wrote The Elegant Universe. He explains to us that what happens, the, the grand unified theory of everything, is that underneath, at the smallest level, what is before and under gravity is actually these tiny vibrating strings of energy. They are unimaginably small. In fact, by definition, you cannot observe them. You can't see them in any way, shape, or form. That they function... In order to, to function in the universe the way we understand it, they have to function in, in an unimaginable but mathematically necessary seven dimensions. And what causes these superstrings to form gravity in the universe as we know it? Well, the answer is simple. Something unimaginable and indescribable from another dimension caused it. 
To which John says, that's great. Science has taught us so much. So I over here said, said that what really caused everything in the universe is that there's an unimaginable wor- word from some indescribable spiritual dimension that was the cause of all things. And here we have 21st century physicists telling us that the only way you can understand creation or the universe is through an unimaginable and indescribable dimension. So, Robert Jastrow, back in the 70s, 80s, he was kind of on the leading edge of a lot of this stuff. I don't know if you guys ever read popular physics stuff. It's like a lot of fun. You should. It really is. It's like, it's like philosophy and life and everything all together. Robert Jastrow, he wrote a book called God and the Astronomers, and in it, he ends with this very, very famous quote. Now, this is a leading NASA scientist, astrophysicist, and not a Christian. And he says this, For scientists, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. (laughs) So what we mean to say is, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Maybe that's not so stupid. What does it mean that the Word was God? If you were to, you know, imagine, you guys like, you know, Match.com and there's eHarmony things. Like, imagine you were to make a profile for God. You'd call him up one day, you're sitting there with your pad and paper and say, God, just have a few questions for you. We've got to fill out this profile for you to see if you're a good match for people on the earth. Um, I was looking out here and we're just missing all kinds of information. Let's start at the beginning. Where are you from? Okay, that question's not going to work, is it? Hmm. For some reason, he can't answer that one. He doesn't come from anywhere. Okay, we'll just skip over that. Well, what influenced you? Like, what made you who you are? Like, I hear that you are loving and just and creative and, like, into animal sacrifices at one point. Like, that's kind of weird, but okay. Talk to me about this. What made you that way? And it says, um, that question doesn't work either. Nothing influenced him. Nothing made him who he is. He is. So what do you look like? I mean, people are really going to be interested in this one. No answer. What fuels you? How strong are you? How big are you? Where were you born? When did you come into existence? Do you understand? All of these are blank, empty. In fact, all of our questions, when we sit down with God and try and fill out His profile, they categorically fail. It's like, it's like asking the question, what color is five plus two? What shape is happy? Those questions don't work. Why? There's categories that that, that don't fit into. And God doesn't fit into any of our space and time categories. He doesn't fit into here or there or where is He from. Like, if you think you can grasp God and fit Him into your category, you're wrong. Language that is based in space and time cannot describe or measure God. Language fails. Have you ever noticed that of the first ten commandments, the, the ten big ones... Ten big things you need. The first three are devoted to what not to think about God. 
He's not like other so-called gods. Don't even, don't even go there. He can't be described in an image. Don't try and make an image of him. And his name is not like any other name. What's his name? Well, this is telling. I am. Great. What does that mean? I am. But I am. I am. That's his name. And John says the word that created all things and is eternally distinct from God, yet this word shares the exact nature of God, that the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Notice he. It's a person. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. That life itself, the source of life as we know it, is in him. And that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So so we come to this point, we're sitting by this fire with John, we're like, John, that's cool, but I just have no idea what you're saying right now. Please help me out. So all you've done is you've taken us to the edge of all existence to say that there's something that we can't imagine, we can't describe, and somehow it's life and light and yeah. And what, please tell me this has something to do with Christmas. John literally means that the Word, our God, is the source of all things. That God creates and sustains all things by His Word. That all things were created in Him and through Him and for Him. That if He ceased to will for a moment that you exist that you, you would cease to exist. Your existence is dependent on God wanting you to exist. That's what His Word is. In Scripture, this idea will be applied in terms that just sound awkward to the modern ear. So if you ask the Bible, uh, where does the rain come from? Um, Matthew 5.45, God makes it rain. What causes the sun to shine? And it's going to say, um, Matthew 5.45, the second half. God makes the sun shine. Um, what causes the stars to run their course? According to Job, it says God. Like, what makes the grass grow and the trees lift their branches? Psalm 104, God. That when we read through the scriptures, it says Everywhere that God created by His Word, that His signature, His expression, His revelation, like me sharing the day with my daughter after the bus stop, that is in everything. That His goodness, His beauty, His invisible attributes are everywhere crying out so that you might know Him and worship Him. So this is the moment when you look up at the stars at night or you stand over the ocean or you go up on a high peak and look out and at that moment, if you're a normal, healthy human being, you feel so infinitely small and yet you feel so alive. And something, whether you know Him or not, bursts up that can only be described as worship. According to Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is going to say that if in that moment you do not take time to acknowledge God and the beauty and the grandeur and the excellence in life itself, that this is willful ignorance and a great evil. The 
Apostle John is going to say, it's darkness. You're blind. Like you see everything, but you don't see. Like you're missing the best part of life. That to go through life and not see the reason and the meaning and the glory and the beauty that is under and in and before all things is blindness. So imagine a couple guys, they go up uh, Valley Forge and they go up to the top of the hill and they just sit down there and they're watching and the sun sets. And you know that one part of Valley Forge where it goes down and you can just, it's perfect. And as they go, the sky just changes colors. I mean, it's fantastic. Just everything you can imagine going on up there. And one says, what is this? And the one guy says, well, I'll tell you what it is. Um, see, as the sun's rays go hit a certain angle through the light's atmosphere, it reflects the light in a certain way, causing this certain thing of lights of blah, 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 and goes to a big, long scientific explanation. That's what it is. And what's the other guy say? He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Something in me is bursting in worship that I see God at work and I know, I know that I know that I know, though I can't explain it, it's something unimaginable, indescribable, that there's something deeper around us, there's something bigger, there's something more to this life. So which is true? Is this just light reflecting, refracting through the atmosphere? Or is this an expression of God's worship and glory in our world? And may I suggest to you, and I think John might suggest to you, both. So it's possible that science, in this case, can technically describe exactly what's happening as the sun goes through the atmosphere and creates these lights. But it's also equally true that beyond that, under that, before that, is a person, the Word, who's expressing the glory and goodness of God. John's going to say, if all you ever see in life are the facts, or the scientific exterior, or the universe of equations, if you never see anything deeper, then you're missing the best thing. If all you see in life is stuff, if you look at your child and you see a complex animal, Like if you hold your wife's hand or play with your kids or take that first drink of coffee in the morning and your heart doesn't turn to worship, they say there's something beyond, there's something greater, then you're missing the best thing. You're blind. If you don't experience life as God's glorious self-expression, His Word, then you're missing it. And at this time of year, John says, is the time that we should most clearly see it. The very time when we are so obsessed with the things we're buying and the way things look. That at this very time is the time when we should most clearly see, because this is the time of year that we celebrate, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That the Word the, the order of the universe that the Greeks longed to understand. The, the, the word of God that created the universe in Genesis chapter 1. The truth that physicists have desperately sought after. The meaning, the connection that we feel and know in all of our lives. The beauty. The desire for relationship that can't be satisfied in any earthly relationship. That which is under and in and before all things. John says, he has come. 
His name is Jesus. And through Him, you can know and see and experience the meaning of life, the purpose of the universe. Through Him, you can know that everything that is, is for a reason. Through Him, you can know that you are for, exist for a reason. Through Him, you can know that there is beauty and purpose and meaning in everything you see. Through Him, it doesn't change anything. It changes everything. You can see the unimaginable and indescribable God. And so we say to John, John, tell me, how can Jesus show me the unimaginable, indescribable God? And he says, we'll have to do that next week. Let's pray. Father, as, uh, as we sit here and we, we just realize, meditate with John on this mystery that is your son, the word, the, this bigger than a principle, bigger than any power, bigger than any force, and yet certainly not smaller, Lord, something that can't be contained in our words, that is unimaginable and indescribable, Lord, we, we stand before you in all. God, I pray that this week, as we walk out these doors, that we would not see another person or see another sunset. That we would not look up at the sky or look at our children without seeing your hand, your powerful word sustaining it, Lord. God, may we be a people who respond to all things like John does in worship. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.